first, our last song that we sang as an introduction to our message this morning. Uh, we have an anchor, and I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Some time ago, uh, I preached from the first 12 verses of this chapter, uh, the snare of sluggishness, I called it, and I thought maybe it was uh, last summer. But when I checked back, it was in the fall of 2020, so time flies. And from that passage, uh, we notice God's desire that His people be on a trajectory toward an ever more vibrant and mature Christian life. Let us go on to perfection, the, the chapter begins. And the passage has a grim warning uh, in the middle of it, uh, verses 4 and 5, that those who fall away and oppose Christ crucify Him afresh. And while they remain in such a state that there is no path to repentance and restoration. So, in the fall, from fervently following Christ, to bitterly opposing him, there's a stage of sluggishness that he refers to and says that he does not want that to happen to us. So, uh, in this message, we'll look primarily at the rest of the chapter from uh, verses 13 uh, through the end. But for context, let's notice a couple of things that he said just uh, before that. Uh, he is, in verse 9, confident that the people he's writing to are not in that uh, awful category that he was warning about. And he also acknowledges that they are doing many good things of service. They're quite diligent in their service to the saints. And he says in verse 11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then it's like, look, here's an example. Abraham, in verse 13. Let's start reading there. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or unchangeableness of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, 
having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So in these uh, verses, I want to look at three areas, uh, three things. Uh, One, the God who promised. What did He promise? How did He promise it? And then, uh, two, the man who believed. It was Abraham. And as we think about Abraham, we want to think about ourselves. Let's uh, think about ourselves, put ourselves in Abraham's shoes and think about our lives where we are. And we continue to see God very much at work uh, in, in this part as well. And then last, the anchor that holds. We'll learn a little about anchors. And we'll consider, we'll see how, how critically important this anchor is to us. And as that song uh, introduced our subject and uh, emphasized that to us. So the God who promised, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So God, from the foundation of the world, knew all things and had a plan for fallen man, a plan to deliver him from sin and condemnation and to spiritually prosper those who believe and accept his provisions. And God chose Abraham uh, as part of that plan and God revealed himself and his intentions for Abraham in the promises that he made to him. So verse 14 here is just a brief summary. But if we go to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 22, it gives the whole story. And this was on Mount Moriah. Abraham is standing beside the altar on which is piled wood. And lying on top of the wood is his son, his only son, Isaac. And moments before, Abraham had his arm in the, in the air with a knife in his hand, ready to slay his son. And the angel stopped him. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then after Abraham offered the ram that was caught in the bushes, that angel spoke again in verse 15 or 16 and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. And blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So back in uh, in Hebrews 6 here, in verse 16, uh, we look again at the oath, and God's purpose the reason God used the oath. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. 
So to men, uh, an oath is a big deal. The practice goes back for thousands of years, but does an oath make someone's word more sure, more credible? Maybe it sounds more, I really mean business. I really mean it like cross my heart and hope to die. I used to hear that sometimes in grade school, I remember. Uh, an oath is used in courtrooms. A typical oath for a witness would be, I swear by Almighty God that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or the person may name a God recognized by his or her religion or affirm. But it's basically a solemn pledge calling on God to hear what the witness is saying and to hold the witness accountable if he doesn't say the truth. Now, people who lie under oath uh, are in serious trouble if they, if they are found out. But God wanted Abraham to hear the promise. God wanted Abraham to believe, to be convinced of the promise. So he went to extra effort to help Abraham believe. That's why he swore an oath. In verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. So here, we see the heart and desire of God. And really touches me and blesses me uh, in this passage. He not only had good plans and shares wonderful promises, but he wanted Abraham, as well as the heirs of promise, to be thoroughly convinced. And so he, to make it more abundantly uh, and strongly um, convincing that his promises are completely trustworthy, he uh, made the promise with an oath. Two things, that God cannot lie and that God swore an oath by his own name because there is none greater. And when you think about God uh, doing that. He did that uh, also for David, um, maybe some, someone else as well. But um, when you think about these two immutable things, do they strengthen our faith? I, I, am, uh, I was most impressed by God's desire to bridge the gap between man's deep and desperate need and God's plan for redemption and deliverance to bring man, to help bring man to trust him so he could bless him and heal him. So, a little story. I'll try to I condense this some. It's a children's story, so listen up, children. Some of you have seen this uh, Dolly the Milk Cow book. 
Uh, one time there was a cow died. This was a real cow that lived on a farm in Wisconsin. And she was old and becoming blind. And she moved more slowly, more carefully. But she was the leader of the herd, the dairy herd. And one day, uh, Dolly and other cows were out in the pasture. I think it was in early spring. And in the afternoon, the temperature started to drop. We've had some days like that. And turning colder, and it dropped below freezing, and so damp places were turning icy. And at 4 o'clock, Dolly started toward the barn, and the other cows were following her, like they always did. And close to the barn, she slipped on the ice and fell. She wasn't really hurt. She tried to get up, but she couldn't. And the other cows stayed behind her because that's what they always did. So Farmer Don, when he came to the barn, he found Dolly on the ice. And he was very fond of her. He ran and got a bucket of sand and spread it around her and spread a trail from where she was to the barn door. And then he coaxed and trotted Dolly to her feet. But she was afraid that she would slip again, and she refused to budge. She couldn't see the path that Farmer Don had made. He tried to chase the other cows around her to get them into the barn, but they wouldn't go. It got colder and windier, and it was dark. And the cows were shifting and bumping each other. They wanted to be in the barn. It was time to be milked. And Dolly stood quietly, unmoving. Farmer Don scratched her ears and rubbed her back, and he talked to her about the ice and the path he had made. And slowly he moved a couple feet back from her toward the barn, still talking kindly to her. Come on, Dolly, you can do it, he said. And her ears twitched, but she was afraid to move. The wind grew stronger and colder, and it was darker, and the cows were bawling. Farmer Don scratched Dolly's ears again and rubbed her nose and talked again about that path of sand right in front of her. He talked about the warm barn and about the grain and hay that was waiting for her. Come on, Dolly. He coaxed. She trembled. She sniffed the path. And then very slowly and carefully, she took a shaky step toward Farmer Don. And Farmer Don moved back a couple steps right in front of her, still talking. Step by slow, careful step, Dolly made it safely into the warm barn. And the other cows followed. That's a sweet picture of a kind farmer. But I think of God like Farmer Don, that God pleads with us, trust me. And faith reaches for a God who is trustworthy and believable. And I'm impressed, we're impressed, that God wanted to help Abraham believe and trust him.
God's promise to Abraham had two parts. One, that Abraham's descendants would be multiplied as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. And two, that the nations would be blessed by one descendant of him. And that was Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Established, he established the credibility of the Father in a new and superior way. Jesus' life on earth and his ministry. We were studying in Sunday school the miracles and his kindness to the woman at the well and, and other stories. So Hebrews, this book, is about faith, believing God is and is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. But it's also a book that is promoting God's credibility through Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the Father, fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And in Hebrews 2, therefore we must give the most earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You know, if angels, what angels said was steadfast, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus. And Hebrews 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So his promise God's promise with an oath was a strong statement, a strong evidence, but the greatest evidence was the promises fulfilled in Jesus, in his life on the earth, and his, mani his manifestation of God's great love. And a child will trust a loving parent and run from a stranger. Most of us would. Sheep know a kind shepherd's voice. Somebody they know genuinely cares for them. We trust someone. We love over someone that we're suspicious of. So, in this section, we've been impressed with God's desire to help us believe. He didn't just promise good things. He wants to help us trust Him. To make a case, you can trust me. And the greatest evidence is Christ's life and death and resurrection. Now the man who believed in uh, verse 15 there in Hebrews 6, so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That's all it says. But that says a lot. It says that Abraham did what we saw in verse 12. Through faith and patience, inherited the, the promises. He had a faith that steadfastly endured for the long haul. So when you see and hear the name um, 
Abraham, what do you think of? One of the first things I think of is faith. And Abraham's faith is referred to a number of times in the New Testament. In Romans 4, talks about Abraham's faith. He did not waver at the promise of God. Uh, in Galatians 3, Abraham believed what God said, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We see it here in Hebrews 6, and again in chapter 11. And James mentions him in his discussion of faith and works. Abraham was a towering example of faith. So how did he get there? Uh, don't think he began there. It seems like he worshipped other gods with his father and family back in Ur. Seems like it. In Joshua 24, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. But somewhere along the way, Abraham became a worshiper of the true God. Uh, Ur was a wicked place. Um, they worshipped the moon god. Very, very wicked uh, worship. And there was Abraham in the middle of that. And I wonder, did he begin to notice the heavens? To consider the glory of God that the heavens declare? Did he begin to see evidence of the designer creator in nature? And to acknowledge this God is real. He must be real. And to recognize his attributes and his power, like it talks about in Romans 1, was Abraham coming to know someone that his neighbors had no idea of? We don't know the details of that, but we do know that God uh, contacted him directly at some point. It happened in Bible times. It happens today. There are uh, numerous testimonies of Muslims disheartened by their religion and having dreams and visions of meeting Jesus and then becoming Christians. There's one story about a young Muslim woman, Amina. She stopped praying to Allah. She observed that Allah didn't listen to women. He never answers prayer. And to her, he was disrespectful of women. Their ancestor, Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, isn't even mentioned by name in the Koran. Amina had heard about Jesus from a close friend who claimed that Jesus had come to her. And something really appealed to her about that, that she could not believe that it would be real. But she prayed kind of a lighthearted prayer, actually. She prayed that if Jesus is real, if you are real, appear to me, too. And that very night, he did, according to her testimony. She was astonished. And Jesus told her his name is... His name is Elroy. 
the God who sees you, the very name that God had given Hagar thousands of years before. It thrilled Amina's soul to the core, and she became a follower of Jesus. It's an amazing story. So is that how God came to Abraham? In Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin, it says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Why did God approach Abraham and not some other person there and uh, some other member of the tribe, family, or whatever? In Nehemiah, after Ezra read the law to the congregation of the returned captives, and they were exalting God, uh, it says this in Nehemiah 9, 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, Abram, it says there, and brought him out of her of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. God saw something in Abraham's heart. He knew how he would respond when he spoke to him, when he approached him. It can be taken here that uh, he proved himself to be faithful. But there was something different about Abraham's heart. He was first called from Ur, uh, and he moved to Haran with his father and brother Haran. And when he was 75 uh, years old, he was called from Haran to the Promised Land. When he was 99, uh, Isaac was promised to him. And when he was 100, uh, Isaac was born. So what is happening here as um, Abraham listens to God and life goes on? I think there's three things that are happening in Abraham's life. God helped Abraham's faith grow. He gave the promise with an oath, and he kept his promises. And so, Abraham could see, this is what God said, this is what happens. This is what God says, this is what will happen. See how that works. We, uh, we tend to believe somebody who tells us, that they're going to do something, and then it, they do it. God helped Abraham's faith grow. Abraham helped Abraham's faith grow by trusting God and obeying. I think there were small steps at the beginning. If, if God would have asked Abraham to sacrifice a son had he had one while he was still living in earth, would he have done that? He wasn't ready for that. But slowly, over the years, 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 Abraham's faith grew. And the third thing, Abraham's faith grew as he learned to know God. That's what was happening. As he listened to God, as he followed God, he related to God. He prayed to God. Think of the uh, 
read, reading through Genesis, notice the altars of Abraham. And trusting God is not only about, I was mentioning churches here with uh, his faith growing by trusting and obeying, that it's not only uh, that God's promises are true, believing that, but believing that his commandments and his ways are right and for our good. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. You know these things, happy are you if you do them and so on. So he made, uh, Abraham made some poor judgments and that seemed lacking in faith. It wobbled at times. He decided what was best on his own and didn't ask God sometimes. But generally, he listened to God and followed. And as he did, his faith grew stronger. So can ours. His faith was strong enough that when God told him to sacrifice his son, he was ready to do it. He believed that this was the promised son. He believed that God could raise him from the dead if he killed him there on that altar. He didn't see the countless multiplied descendants, but he was confident they were coming. He didn't see Jesus the Messiah, the seed through which all nations would be blessed. But in John 8, um, it says that Jesus told the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, some think that, Jesus, that Abraham saw Jesus in real time, even as Jesus was answering the Jews. And maybe he did. Uh, others feel that he saw him prophetically. He believed it to be as real as if it had already happened. But he was learning about God. So, um, the psalmist said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in Him. Abraham could have said, Trust and see that the Lord is faithful. And with a strong faith, there's a strong hope. With a weak faith, not so much hope. More easily, we're more easily discouraged. The promises are wonderful and strong. They're real and certain. But for a man to inherit them, there must be faith and patience. Then there's the anchor that holds that by two immutable things we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope, excuse me, hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So an anchor, you know, a boat or a ship that's offshore, away from the dock, unmoored from the dock, is subject to winds and waves and anchors, and they can be swept around and blown wherever. And um, anchors are designed for one purpose, and that is to secure the vessel 
in one spot so it doesn't go drifting about. So you remember uh, the Apostle Paul on his voyage to Rome was on a ship that was in a storm. Paul, along with 275 other people, and the storm lasted for days. And on the 14th night, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, and they started measuring how much water there was beneath the boat. And it was getting shallower and shallower, and so they knew they were getting closer to the shore, and they didn't want to run aground in the dark, hitting rocks or who knew what. So they wanted to stop the boat. They wanted to stop the ship and park it. So how did they do it? They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come, he says in Acts 27. And the ship was anchored, and it stayed where it was anchored. And the next morning, after they had breakfast, as Paul recommended, they turned the anchors loose, and they hoisted some sail, and they, the ship started moving toward the shore. But that's what an anchor does. So you... Uh, there are little anchors for little boats. They can weigh as little as two pounds. For uh, aircraft carriers, container ships, cruise ships, they can weigh over 60,000 pounds. So now we understand anchors. And Hebrews uses the anchor here as a metaphor for the hope that we have as Christians. This is a security, a stabilizer, and a motivation for God's redeemed here on the earth. The redeemed are those who have fled for refuge and laid hold of the hope. The fleeing for refuge is a reference to the cities of refuge from the Old Testament. Six cities were set apart. So if somebody accidentally killed someone else, uh, they were at great risk that a, uh, an avenger of blood might catch them and kill them because of what they did. But they could run to a city of refuge and um, be safe, be given a fair trial. So imagine how motivated that person might be. Would he stroll leisurely along the road toward the closest city? Would he take breaks? Would he do sightseeing? Would he do visiting? No, not, not if I were that person. I'd be running as fast as I was able to. Not very fast. But I wouldn't be visiting and smelling flowers. So, <clears throat> what are we fleeing from? What are we fleeing to? There are soul needs. We were desperately lost sinners under condemnation. And we're fleeing for refuge. Forgiveness is found there. And cleansing. We face difficulties, family issues, and church concerns, and 
finances and personal struggles and temptations and trials and griefs. And we flee for refuge, for grace, for guidance and victory and comfort. And we're facing an ungodly culture in a world that's just careening toward the end times. And Christianity is opposed and despised and mocked. Persecution is rising, and it's going to get worse. You read the prophecies in the epistles and Revelation, but the conqueror, Jesus, will end it with a great victory. So don't panic. Flee for refuge. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So those who have fled know the needs. They see the dangers and the threats and the weaknesses of themselves and the spiritual storms. And their anchor is in the Holy of Holies. In the presence of God. And it is an anchor both sure and steadfast. Verse 19, the Amplified says, It cannot slip and it cannot break down. A strong consolation for all the promises of God. In Him are yes and in Him amen to the glory of God. God promised it, amen. So be it, a done deal. The anchor is Jesus, the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Uh, we can read about him in Hebrews 4. Let us come. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the anchor is Jesus, of course. And he is the forerunner, it says, within the second veil. Our advocate before the Father to intercede on our behalf. And the forerunner is telling us that we'll be following him there. It's not just that he's the front runner. He's running ahead of us and we're chasing. But rather he is leading us and he is taking us there. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. First Peter 1. For this anchor to be helpful to us, to benefit us, one thing is necessary, a connection. Something connecting us to the anchor. If the sailors had thrown the anchors overboard without any rope or cable, Attached, the anchors would have splashed into the sea and sank, and the boat just as unstable the ship as it was before. So it had no effect. There must be a strong link. No connection. We may have a wonderful anchor. We may have a 60,000-pound anchor. But if there's nothing connecting our boat to it, there's nothing, no help for us. And that link is faith and trust in God's promises. Like we've been talking about, 
like Abraham was, and a constant and growing relationship with God. And God helps us to nurture that faith. He doesn't take over, but He helps us. He does things we don't know to help us. And so this is the anchor, this strong consolation, this sure hope. And it's both a present hope and a future hope. So in the future, it's a deliverance from the very presence of sin into the very presence of God in heaven. And a confidence that everything that's so terribly wrong here with the earth and with ourselves will be made right and our enemy, the accuser, will harass us no more and King Jesus will then win a final and glorious victory. So we talked about the God who promised and the greatest evidence that He is credible is Christ. His life and ministry, His death, and resurrection. And we've talked about the man who believed and faith. God helped Abraham's faith grow. He'll help ours. Abraham helped Abraham's faith. We need to do our part, too, and trust and obey. And Abraham's faith grew as he related to God and learned to know Him. And so can we. And we talked about an anchor that holds a strong consolation, secure and steadfast, Jesus Christ, in the Holy of Holies, interceding for us. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. But while we're here, God is preparing us, working on us. So while we're here, uh, He's giving us a lot of attention, nurturing and growing us through the difficulties that we, some of them we mentioned earlier, if we let Him. Ongoing sanctification. And many of the promises that God gives, many, many of them, apply to life right here. We're thankful for the great promise of an eternity with Jesus and worshiping Him forever. But many of God's promises apply to us right here, today. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Come to the throne of grace and find mercy, grace for help. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So we can have a strong consolation now, here, today, an anchor of hope, Jesus Christ, in every situation and in every need, and for eternity. May God bless us.